Kia ora and hello everyone. Welcome to this webinar on the racialization of COVID-19 resistance and reimagining. Welcome to our Atlantic Fellows, Obama Fellows, and for the first time in our webinar series, a small group of Roddenberry Fellows. A really warm welcome. This week, our Rhodes Scholars and alumni are not joining us because as we speak, important conversations are occurring for them about race justice and the Rhodes Scholarships. A huge thank you to our three speakers, Michael, Mera and Tracy, who will be taking a lead on the conversation today. Thank you also to Racial Equity Senior Fellow Rich Wallace, who will be closing today's webinar with his own poetry spoken word. Michael, Meta, Tracy and Rich, thank you for your generosity. Racism was this week referred to by Public Health England as the riskiest pre-existing condition for COVID-19 in the UK. A powerful statement because it lifts the lens away from race to racism. It is a pre-existing condition right across the world as more black, brown and indigenous peoples are disproportionately affected with higher rates of infection and death. We acknowledge that this is all occurring against the backdrop of raised global consciousness around issues of race, police brutality and Black Lives Matter. This is not a new moment in time, but the most recent phase in an ongoing and long struggle for equity and racial justice. The dismantling of systemic, social, economic, health and racial inequities requires powerful human ecosystems. The global ecosystem of fellows, Obama, Atlantic, Schmidt and Roddenberry, brings together leaders from across the world who are diverse in so many ways, but who share a deep commitment to justice. In this broader community, we hope that you will find solidarity, care, support and new ideas. While many countries are lifting restrictions, others are just starting to feel the full impact of this disease. And globally, when this first started, it took three months to get to one million cases. The last million cases in the world have come in just eight days, with thousands of people still dying from this disease and most before their time. As a global community, the hashtag MyPandemic isn't over until yours is, is even more true. To this end, could I ask that we all take a moment to remember those who have lost their lives, including those in recent times who have included immediate family members of our fellows. Thank you. It's now my pleasure to introduce you to Tanya Charles, the Atlantic Institute Programming and Impact Lead Senior Fellow Engagement, an extraordinary young leader who is making a significant change in the world, and we're very blessed to have her as part of our community. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you so much, Evie, for such a warm welcome, and it's really great to have our fifth webinar on this very pertinent and timely conversation and to be joined by speakers from very different corners of the world to really give us some thought and leadership on this topic. It's my honor to introduce the first speaker, Mr. Michael Smith who currently serves as Director of Youth Opportunity Programs and Executive Director of the My Brother's Keeper Alliance at the Obama Foundation. The MBK Alliance leads a national call to action to build safe and supportive communities for boys and young men of color where they are valued and have clear pathways to opportunity. Michael was part of the team that designed and launched the My Brother's Keeper initiative and he was also appointed special assistant to President Obama and senior director of cabinet affairs for My Brother's Keeper, managing the initiative and interagency task force at the White House. 
Michael is also one of our really wonderful Atlantic Fellows from the Racial Equity Program, and he's joining us to give us the first and opening remark, which we invite you to do at this moment. Michael, thank you so much. Thank you, Tanya. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the globe. It is an honor to be here with all of you. I say greetings to my siblings, as my South African colleagues have taught me, or as I would say to my family. I really, truly cherish and value and treasure having the opportunity to be a part of this community, and I'm grateful to be asked to join in this important, critical conversation today. As Tanya shared, I lead our My Brother's Keeper initiative at the Obama Foundation and ran it in the Obama White House and was a part of the team that started it. My Brother's Keeper was started after the tragic killing of Trayvon Martin. At that time, there were a couple different things going on. One for President Obama, we were in a moment like this horrific moment that we see ourselves in after the killing of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Nina Pop and way too many others. And the president was trying to express to the American people the anger and the angst and the fear of what this felt like to black and brown families. One day he went to the press briefing room and he spoke kind of candidly about these issues. And he said, Trayvon could have been me. Trayvon could have been my son. And there has to be more that we can do to make sure that young men of color know that their country cares about them and is willing to invest in them. That was one of the major things that led to the creation of My Brother's Keeper. The other thing that led to the creation of My Brother's Keeper was a stark realization that while President Obama and the Obama administration were trying to create this opportunity for all society, really trying to create an America where Barack and Michelle Obama wouldn't be the last people that looked like them to inhabit the Oval Office, And we were seeing some gains. We started the Obama administration looking at, for instance, a high school dropout crisis. Towards the end of the Obama administration, we were beginning to celebrate high school graduation rates of over 82, 83, 84, 85%. But if you looked at the high school graduation rate, for instance, for Black, Latinx, and tribal young men of color, you were seeing graduation rates lower than 50%. In Rochester, New York, that year that we were doing the studies, you saw they were graduating 9% of their Black boys. So this moment that we find ourselves in right now now was really many of the reasons that we created My Brother's Keeper in the first place, to have a real national conversation and have a national policy agenda on what we were going to do to reduce disparities, expand opportunity, and really confront how systemic racism leads to death. The APA, the American Psychological Association, says that we are in a racism pandemic, looking at the compounding mortalities that we're dealing with of the effects of COVID-19 and the disproportionality that Black and Brown communities in the United States and all over the world, frankly, are facing in the face of COVID-19. And then we're looking at this horrific systemic violence in the form of state violence to Black folks in the United States. And the toll that that takes on Black Americans is horrific. I'm looking at a quote from the head of the APA who says, racism is associated with a host of psychological consequences, including depression, anxiety, and other serious, sometimes debilitating conditions, including post-traumatic stress disorder and substance use disorders, and that that stress caused by racism can contribute to the development of cardiovascular and other physical diseases. So this idea that we are not only dealing with what our surface level problems, but we are dealing with generational wounds that can lead to wounds for many, many years to come when it comes from folks that are dealing with it right now. When we look at the data in the United States, you see that in every category, Black people between 55 and 64 years of age are higher death rates for white people age 65 to 74, both on death and infections. And in every age category, Black people are dying from COVID at the roughly the same rate as white people more than a decade older than they are. 
that's the toll that it's taking on our communities when it comes to death and infection. And then when you look at the economy, job and wage losses due to COVID-19 have hit the Hispanic adults in America the hardest. Some 61% of Americans and 44% of Black Americans said in April that they or someone in their household had experienced a job or wage loss due to the coronavirus outbreak. That's compared to 38% of white adults. And when you look at how this virus continues to hit hard in Black and brown communities in the United States and frankly, all over the world, we are the ones that oftentimes can't sit comfortably at home and work from home. We have to go in. We are the bus drivers and we are the train operators and we are the grocery store workers. We are the ones that are providing low-income childcare. So we are constantly putting ourselves at risk on top of a system that has already left our health in a place that makes us more vulnerable to this disease. This moment that we're in when we think about a racism pandemic, the anger that you're seeing, the response that you're seeing finally from some of our white colleagues in the United States is because it's so obvious, it's so present, you can't ignore it. And when you think about racism being lethal, it so often happens over longer periods of time. It so often happened without a video camera being present. And when I think about it in the My Brother's Keeper context, I think about how racism slowly kills. In the United States, racism has led to the fact that our Black and Latinx boys of color in the United States, 80% of them are not reading at grade level. That's the same data that is used to determine how many prison beds are going to be built in most communities. And that is the same determining factor of how many young people's lives could end up lost in the incarceration system. And starting as early as third grade in the United States, this school-to-prison pipeline. I think about the high school dropout rate and how that slowly happens. And not having a high school degree in the United States of America is almost a guaranteed ticket for a young Black man to entering an unjust incarceration system. I look at our juvenile justice system, or we look at homicide rates in the United States where Black boys, for instance, are 6% of the nation's population, but more than half of the nation's murder victims. How that slowly kills, how racism slowly kills. So when we think about slavery and Jim Crow and redlining and lynching, we still live in the United States of America where racism is slowly killing our black and brown families on top of the police violence that we're dealing with, on top of the horrific pandemic that we're seeing with COVID. The last data point that I'll give you is President Obama's Council on Economic Advisors uh, released a study when we were in office that showed if you were a black baby boy born 25 years ago, you had a one in two chance of being employed in the United States of America today. A one in two chance of being employed in the United States of America with the GDP that we have. And that was due to early death, incarceration, or other inequities in employment and education. So when we look at the staggering, heartbreaking, generational results of systemic inequality, we see it so early in the lives of our young people. We're underfunded schools, over-policed neighborhoods, broken economic pathways are leading to real impact, whether it's on long-term livelihood or actually life and liberty for our young folks. So for our work, when we're looking at COVID, there are a couple things that we are especially worried about. Obviously, we're looking at infection and death, and we are looking at the fact that folks are still having to show up. So many of the organizations that we work with, the NGOs and nonprofits in the United States, they're having to provide personal protective equipment because the government has failed in neighborhoods. Many of our My Brother's Keeper organizations are providing hundreds of meals a week because the government has failed. And you have people who are out of work and don't have food security and are already living in neighborhoods that were food deserts or don't have access to healthy foods or even healthy healthcare systems. So one, we are worried about that. 
Two, we are worried about employment and school. In the United States, we have a category that we call opportunity youth, where there are more than 7 million young people that are out of school or out of work already. And we know what that leads to when you start off at that age. And those are young people between the ages of 16 to 24 that are out of school and out of work. So imagine when school has been closed and you're distance learning and you're expected to have a laptop and internet at home, which is still not the case in the United States for so many of our kids, especially in kids that have been in communities that have been systematically neglected. And so we are worried about what happens to this generation that was already on the margins, already so close to potentially falling off of school and work pathways what happens. And so we're trying to do a lot of work to make sure that we are supporting and undergirding our young people so that they don't fall off. We're worried about interaction with the police system. First with COVID, where already, and Rich can talk about this, he had posted a video of something that happened in Chicago, and we're seeing this all over the country. We have stay-at-home orders, and our young people sometimes are being young people, and they're out or they're not housed in the same way that everyone else is housed. And we see horrific interactions with the police system where they're violently trying to displace young people. And this leads, as we can see now, potentially to violence, to death, to incarceration, and increasing the already horrible pathway into incarceration that we have for young men of color in the United States of America. So we're trying to work with our community to do something about that as well, really just calling attention to it. The last thing that we're worried about is sustainability of the nonprofit partners that we work with that are making up for a broken government and a broken social contract where our government is not taking care of our people in the way that it should. So we have hundreds of thousands of nonprofits that are standing in the gap that are working on violence prevention, working on education opportunities, working on job pathways, providing meals, providing PPE. And as the economy turns down in the United States of America, many of these nonprofits are worried about whether or not they're going to keep their doors open and how many will be left behind on the other side of this economic downturn. So we're trying to work a lot on resource preservation and making sure that those nonprofits can come out at least as strong as they were beforehand. And I'll stop on the last point, which is data, 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 data. We still do not have enough clarity when it comes to the data about what the disparities are when it comes to COVID and the impact on the economy and on the health of Black and Brown Americans. And so that's something else that we are paying particular attention to. Thank you so much, Michael, in really setting the landscape in terms of the many excess of inequality that Black, Brown and Indigenous people are living under. I was struck by what you said earlier in your presentation that we are simultaneously valued and devalued. So we're valued for our work, for being at the front lines of this as carers, as people in the markets, but at the same time, when you go home from that, you could be killed by the police. You could be killed because you live in a neighborhood that's disproportionately policed. And there are many other ways in which we're also vulnerable. So thank you for setting up that juxtaposition and really forcing us to reckon with the disparities in our communities. It is my privilege now to turn to another corner of the world as we move from the United States to New Zealand to hear from Dr. Mira Pinahira who is the Associate Professor in Indigenous Education in New Zealand. And please forgive me, Dr. Panera, if I don't say this right. She's an Associate Professor at the School of Indigenous Graduate Studies at Teware Wananga or Awunyuangari, where she leads the International Indigenous Doctoral Program. Dr. Mira is a mother, she's an academic, she's an activist in her community. She completed her master's in educational psychology at the University of Auckland, and her doctoral research centered on Maori women's health and traditional healing practices, in particular moho, traditional Maori skin carving. 
Mira is also the recipient of the New Zealand Health Research Council Postdoctoral Fellowship. And this research explored the Maori views of sexual and reproductive health. Such a privilege to have you, Mira, joining us at very, very, very early hours where you are. And we're excited to hear your thoughts and insights. So over to you. Kia ora. Nei rā te mihi, kia koutou katoa, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, kia ora tātou katoa. Greetings everybody. Yes, it's early in the morning here, it's 1am, but I'm privileged to be here and thank you for creating the space for these kinds of really, really important conversations. Nā reira, kei te mihi, kia koutou katoa. I want to also reiterate and further acknowledge all of those who have lost loved ones who are under a huge challenge and stress at this time. Ngā mihi nui, kia koutou katoa. For us here in Aotearoa, as Evie mentioned in the introduction, our mantra has become that this disease and the virus of COVID-19 is not over for us until it's over for everybody. So I want to contribute today our solidarity solidarity of our hearts and minds in this discussion. May our lessons learned be your lessons learned. May your lessons learned be our lessons learned. May we all have this conversation for the purpose of meaningful transformation of our communities that must continue in the face of both COVID-19 and racism, which are both pandemics, as Michael has just discussed, the latter of which, racism, has been around for much longer than COVID-19, yet remains and indeed spikes over generations as it is now. So I'm going to start today by sharing the story of a close friend of mine to give you a sense of our current context, which might be a little bit different to what you're hearing in the media. Her name is Ngahina Hohaya, and she's a descendant of the people of Parihaka, which is a rural village known here for their staunch commitment to passive resistance in the face of New Zealand land wars in the 1800s in particular. Ngahina, like me, also wears the markings of our ancestors on her chin, which are known as Moko Kowai. So there are lots of volcanic mountains in the city that my friend Ngahina and I live in. Like many others, Ngahina enjoys walking the tracks on the mountains. All of these mountains are in the lands and authority of Ngāti Whātua, the tribal nation of this area. Recently, that nation determined it would proceed with a project to remove the non-native or coloniser trees, as I call them, from the mountain and would replant the native trees that were in abundance on the mountain prior to our colonisation. This has seen an uproar from the non-native community of the area who have staged an ongoing protest on the mountain to save their coloniser trees. They are essentially standing in opposition to the tribal nation on whose lands they live. Two weeks ago, my friend Ngahina drove to the mountain where she planned to park her car and then walk around the mountain tracks. This is her story and her words, quote, I was just physically and verbally assaulted up at Orwaidaka Mountain this morning by an older Pākehā, non-Māori woman, when I told her to hold on to her dog as she let it walk in front of my moving car. She responded with, shut up, you black bitch. You disgraceful idiots who go around with those mokos on your face. As I took my phone out of my pocket, she stepped towards me and hit me. For a long time, or Wairaka, this mountain has been where I come to exercise for my well-being. How much longer is the Maunga Authority going to let or Wairaka, this Maunga, be overrun by this campaign? End of quote. 
Nahina subsequently laid a police complaint and an investigation is underway. In the meantime, there has been a large media response to the attack, many questioning the validity of the event, the honesty of my friend. However, there was an even more powerful response from our fellow Māori woman, led by the local tribe, who organised and gathered on that same mountain in ceremonial Māori woman's solidarity to chant, to pray and to ultimately restore the Modi, the sacred essence to both my friend and the mountain itself. This was a circle of hundreds of women, also supported by menfolk and family that reached beyond the circumference of a rugby field, suffice to say it was big. And so whilst we're yet to know the end of this particular story, we did not wait for justice from our police department or for the restoration of anything to come from a police department. Rather, we women acted as and when needed. Just shared the story as an example of the ongoing racism that Māori women face and know alongside our black brothers and sisters, alongside our native and indigenous relatives around the globe. It's also a story of how we know how to respond, to resist and to enact our own sovereign ways of being. Aotearoa may have eliminated the COVID-19 virus, but we are far, far, far from eliminating racism. So I want now to address the kind of question that Evie posed for today's meeting. How is it that we can use the new equities that have been brought forward in this context of COVID-19? How can we or can we use this knowledge to resist prevailing unjust social and economic systems and reimagine our futures? Can we? Yes, 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 and yes. How? So I considered what have we done so far? In our context, we resisted waiting for the government to act in the face of COVID-19. We took and continue to take matters into our own hands to ensure our health and well-being. Today's health statistics and our health statistics for the past 100 plus years are a stark indicator that we cannot rely on our government to make the kinds of decisions that will protect the health and well-being of Māori or of Indigenous peoples. Our country alert levels set out guidelines for those considered at risk. We, Māori, raised the bar of every guideline. So when the government decided that those over the age of 70 were to be considered vulnerable, we enacted that for those over 60 because we simply don't live as long as the majority non-Māori population. We are vulnerable earlier. When the government said those with respiratory illness were at risk, we knew immediately that meant most of us were at risk because we are disproportionately impacted by respiratory disease and all of the other conditions that our government decided put people at risk. However, what we know as Indigenous peoples is that we are survivors. Our mere existence is our resistance. Why? Because when things like the Spanish flu, malnutrition, land wars, Great Depressions have come close to wiping us out, we have continued to exist. For us Māori here in the COVID-19 context, we have survived because of our courage to act as sovereign beings and to take control of our own context. We survived by speaking our language and being reminded of the protection and notions of protection that exist only in our and other Indigenous languages. 
We survived by remembering the practices of our ancestors, both spiritual and practical, or perhaps more aptly described as spiritually practical ways of being. We had tribal nations maintaining their own borders through enacting themselves as sovereign beings, checkpoints established by tribes on a number of borders within our country. They determined, they stopped, they said who could come and go in their tribal lands. So what have we learnt? We've learnt what we already knew. We have relearned the value of what our ancestors left us with. We have learnt not to wait for our sovereignty to be granted, but to be sovereign beings that we know ourselves to be by virtue of who we were born of. And ultimately, we've learnt to adapt yet again, to be clever in the face of non-physical contact. Again, our ancestors taught us this. To connect, we do not have to be in the same room as we know here. Not even in the same land, we connect spiritually together in this realm and with those in the other realm, and those connections are what keep us safe and together and actually beg us to reconceptualise at this time. This is not a time of isolation, being in lockdown, but it is a time of togetherness and completeness in a much more sophisticated way than we are used to. So in closing, I want to leave you with my truly humble thanks for the space to share our experience and what we've learned and acknowledge that we have so, so, so much more to learn. And I want to thank all of you who are actively involved in the protection of Native and Indigenous peoples and of people of colour in both the pandemic of COVID-19 and the pandemic of racism. Thank you for all we have seen and learnt from you. Thank you for your ongoing strength activism and transformation and amidst all that we face. I end as I started by offering our hearts and minds and our actions in solidarity. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou. Kia ora tātou katoa. Thank you so much for the time. So heartfelt, Nira. Thank you so much for really reminding us that this is also a spiritual, emotional and heartfelt experience that we are going through and just to take the time to check in with that aspect of ourselves and your really beautiful personal story I think for me exemplifies the fact that history is very much present in this time we've heard so often these injustices were hundreds of years ago particularly in our context here in Oxford where there are calls for statues to be removed the idea and the feeling that we are still living with the traumas and the reminders of what our different peoples have gone through, that history is very much generational. The injustices are generational. At the same time, we can take matters into our own hands. And you've given us that beautiful example, as well as reminded us that we can do something about it as our governments fail our communities. It helps us to then have a deeper understanding of why there's so much protest and so much demand is because we haven't felt heard. And so, yes, we are connected across geography and dimension and really so much gratitude to you for reminding us of that. Thank you so much, Mira. At this point, I'm going to introduce our final keynote, Tracy Use. She's an Atlantic Fellow for Social and Economic Equity. She works at the International Budget Partnership in South Africa as the Senior Advocacy Officer, where she works alongside grassroots organizations to advocate for improved water and sanitation access to informal settlements across South African cities. 
Her work also seeks to promote budget accountability and transparency in government. Tracy has been working over the last few months very intensely to address the impacts of COVID in South Africa. And so she's going to share some case studies around that, which we are really privileged to learn about from that part of the world. Thank you so much, Tracy, for joining us. Over to you. Thank you so much, Tanya, for the introduction. It's an honor and a privilege to be here today. I really appreciate the space. And also thanks to Michael and Meadow for those really powerful presentations that they've given. I'm based in Cape Town in South Africa. And Cape Town is the epicenter of the coronavirus in the country. More than 53% of cases of COVID-19 in South Africa are in Cape Town. We are very much still in relatively early stages. We haven't reached our peak yet. So I think the opportunity to think about post-COVID-19 is important because I think the sooner we can start planning for the future, the better. But just to acknowledge that we are still very much in the midst of a crisis here. Secondly, to say that the South African government has not released information on race disaggregated data for COVID-19 cases. That's not to say that we don't have it. The National Minister for Health has been called to provide this information by opposition parties, but the response has been that this isn't about race. It's not important for us to release that information right now, which is obviously very concerning because we need to, as, as Michael said very clearly, data, 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 the more we understand about the way the virus is affecting different communities and particularly different racial groups, the more we can respond effectively. And this is particularly pertinent in South Africa, given our history of race-based discrimination and apartheid. So while I'm not able to speak to the data around race and COVID-19, what we do know is that in our cities, the hotspots for coronavirus are pretty much all located in informal settlements. So these are slum areas that are on the periphery of cities, extremely vulnerable communities. So I'm going to look at this presentation through that lens. It also speaks very closely to the work that I'm involved in at International Budget Partnership South Africa. So I just wanted to start by giving a bit of context to informal settlements in South Africa. For those of you that may not be familiar, over 3.1 million people are estimated to live in informal settlements in this country. And disproportionately, those are settlements occupied by black residents. So 95% of informal settlement residents are black, 4% colored, and less than 1% are white and Asian. 11% of black South Africans live in an informal dwelling. So the numbers tell a very clear story about racial inequity in South Africa. Most of the 2,700 informal settlements in our country are located across the eight major cities. And our cities remain highly unequal and segregated by race. And given what we know about race as a social determinant of health, I think there's some very clear indicators that black communities are far more vulnerable to the risks associated with COVID-19, not only from a health perspective, but also from a social and economic perspective. There are over 500 informal settlements in the city. There are smaller pockets and there are larger areas, and there is an alignment between areas of risk and vulnerability and informal settlements. As I said, these are spaces where people are far from economic opportunities. They're sharing services. It's not uncommon for more than two dozen households to share a toilet. 
significantly more than that, sharing a tap and people have limited access to resources like hand sanitizer and soap, for example. A lot of the work we've been involved in at IBP South Africa has been focused on creating a platform for residents in informal settlements to engage government during COVID-19, to really identify where they are lacking services, lacking water, lacking toilets, where toilets aren't cleaned regularly, where they don't have access to soap and the like, and to use that information to engage government and We found a way to do that by using SMS surveys, by doing phone call surveys to gather the information, because on a regular day, our government is inaccessible to these residents. And I think that's been exacerbated with the COVID-19 crisis because of the lockdown. So it's been really impactful to see that communities are still able to engage government and government is able to respond to that. So we have seen across the cities some positive response to government where they've redirected resources to informal settlements based on the information that we've gathered through this campaign. But there's significantly more that needs to be done. So thinking about how we work towards a reimagining of these spaces. The work that we do at IBP is focused on budgets. That's one of our main advocacy tools. We've started these conversations as a team. And one of the start points for us has been to recognize just the discourse and narrative that we're up against. It's sometimes explicit and sometimes implicit that you get the sense that underserved communities are considered as undeserving communities. Government has a basic standard for water and sanitation, and that's often treated as a maximum standard. So they don't often provide more than than the minimum standard. We get things like we don't have enough money to spend on informal settlements, but you know that they're spending resources and other things, and there are opportunities for them to redirect funds to informal settlements. So. A lot of what we're thinking about going forward is about resisting that narrative that these communities don't deserve more, that they're not worth more, and to use our tools around budget analysis to be able to make compelling arguments for alternative ways of spending money. Because money, obviously, government funds is what turns policy into practice. So we think that's a really powerful tool. I try to identify three very practical things that we can do or that we currently are exploring as a team. The first one is is to interrogate the city budgets in a lot of detail to be able to identify where there are reserve funds, where there are surpluses, and to be able to not just say, we think you need to allocate more money for informal settlements, but to actually show them that we understand the budget and be very specific about where we think those funds can come from and to push them to make different choices, to make better choices, which will address racial and economic inequality. The second arm of our approach is to focus on building collective agency and informal settlements. These are communities that aren't passive recipients of government resources and support. There's a lot of potential there. They have a very detailed understanding of their own needs. And so what they might need is information, information about how government works, what are the most effective entry points to influence decision making. And so our work with grassroots organizations very much focuses on that creating opportunities for residents themselves to influence decision-making. So we can shift from a very top-down model, which is the norm, to a more ground-up model for policy and decision-making. Building that collective agency is a significant part of our methodology. The third thing is transparency. So advocating for greater transparency, starting with, for example, pushing government to make racist aggregated data available making more detailed information available around the plans for informal settlements and around budgeting. 
as much as we do budget analysis work, you'll be surprised at how hard it is to get granular information about what cities are spending on informal settlements, even though they make up a huge part of our landscape in our cities and obviously are important spaces for redress. So pushing for transparency is something that we'll continue to do because we believe with transparency, we can do more to hold government accountable. This is just a very high-level perspective of the kind of work that we're doing. As much as this is an immense challenge, I do believe change is possible, and I think we can do better together. So thanks very much for the opportunity. Thank you so, so much, Tracy, for giving us a case study on what's been possible over this very difficult time to ensure the immediate economic and health needs of the most vulnerable Black and colored people in our terms in South Africa are being met at this time. I think for me, it continues to show the complexity around the disposability of Black life, even on our African continent. How if you're poor and Black, your chances of survival are even less. And so really how we do need to pay attention to the different axes of vulnerability that exist And again, you've really brought home this idea that Mira and Michael echoed about empowering people to make decisions and to have a voice and a say and a role to play not only in decision making, but in policy making. So thank you so much. I'll invite Evie now to introduce an amazing, amazing Atlantic fellow who is going to close this webinar in performance and poetry. Evie. Thanks, Tanya. And thank you so much to Michael, to Tracy, and to Meta. Huge appreciation to the three of you. It's my honour, really briefly, but with heartfelt feeling, to introduce you all to Rich Wallace. Rich is a senior fellow for the Atlantic Fellows for Racial Equity, the same programme that Michael is a graduate from. Rich leads the Equity and Transformation Project in Chicago, which focuses on the informal and street economy to advance social change locally and increase equity for those who are most excluded from society. He is a hip-hop artist, come activist, come extraordinary leader in Chicago and in the United States, and it's my honour to introduce you to him. Thank you. Shout out to everyone. It's an amazing call. And so I'm excited to take off my organizer hat and put my artist hat on. Evie, I just want to thank you again for allowing people like myself to be in this space. It's an intervention in itself to have me here. I'm a formerly incarcerated person who does this work. And I like to say I'm brilliant and formerly incarcerated, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's important to lift ourselves up in this moment. And so as I recognize that this work is physical, it's mental, but for me, it's also spiritual. And often the way that I work out the spiritual work is by having conversations with my higher power. Some people call them gods, people call them Allah, Buddha, however you want to call them or call your spiritual, whatever. So this was a poem that I wrote right when COVID-19 hit. And I knew for myself and for the community I represent, there was going to be very little resources and or intervention on behalf of those people. And I was scared. And as an organizer and as a director of an organization, people don't allow you to be afraid. <laughs> you know, you got to know the answers immediately. And there's something specific about being an organizer in the states that I've experienced where we are victims of a violence or of a trauma, and we have to solve it simultaneously. It's like the next day after COVID hits, what are you going to do about it? The next day after Ahmaud Arbery, what are you going to do about it? The next day after Tamir Rice, what are you going to do about it? And I don't think that's fair. Right. <laughs> so I often call on God and other folks in order to try to walk me through it. So this is the poem. Oh, here he go again, being extra. 
Guess I'm just tired of playing Tetris. Shape-shifting, spinning on my back so racism doesn't catch us. Poor Aubrey. During a pandemic that stole loved ones at arm's reach. Reminds me of can't breathe. Lord, can I have a minute with you, please? We've been hanging from trees since we got here. On the bottoms of boats shackled to our elders as they rot there. If there was ever a moment to show yourself, it was right there. A hundred years later and we're right there as jail cells turn into electric chairs if COVID's there. It spooked that sat by the door, heard plans of war, a war like no other, where queen became uh, and nigger replaced brother, where race was used to other that able disabled others, mothers shackled at birth give birth to children in shackles from it, the trauma. Worn like armor, 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 savage, armor, armor monster, opposed to armor, I'm a foster child. Our parents were taken from us. Don't tell me you didn't hear Tamir Rice, Sandra Bland, or Laquan. That you didn't see Trayvon Martin murdered on that lawn. The list goes on and on and on and on. My grandmother told me stories about you. Told me to never doubt you so I don't. I'm praying that you end this, but I'll settle for some hope. Please show me a sign. Signed, Black and COVID. That's the poem. Hope you all liked it, enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Rich, for bringing the stories of the people we've lost to racism back to the center of this conversation so powerfully and beautifully. We also send our strength and love to you as you work in your own organization to deal with the fallout through, as you say, your own fears and tribulations. We honor that. And as your Atlantic community, we are here for you. On that powerful note, I do want to bring this webinar to a close. We have another webinar that's coming up on July 9th on humanity during and post-COVID-19. What is the state of humanity? Go well, everybody, and continue to be protected and to be safe to yourselves and your loved ones. Until next time. Bye from us.